0: This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happimon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border, Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the National Security Conversation. The Chatham House or the Royal Institute of International Affairs published a report earlier this month entitled Global Britain, Global Broker, outlining a blueprint for the United Kingdom's future in the emerging international order. While the report states that India's importance to the United Kingdom is inescapable, it also labels India as a difficult country along with Russia Turkey, and Saudi Arabia. To discuss this report, India-UK relations in general, and to understand British grand strategy in a post-Brexit and post-COVID-19 world order, I have with me Professor Kate Sullivan Destraba. Professor Sullivan Destraba is the Director of South Asian Studies and Associate Professor at the University of Oxford, United Kingdom. Professor, you know, a recent study by the Chatham House entitled "The Global Britain, Global Broker, identifies India as one of the four difficult countries alongside Russia, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia. And you wrote an article in the Indian Express recently, and you argue that such labeling reveals that the liberal world orders is yet to be free from, quote-unquote, imperial bias. Tell us a little more about this imperial bias. Uh, why do you think such a bias persists even today?
1: Mm. So um, I think, well, it's important to note that, that the term imperial bias is of course the title attributed to my piece because we don't often get to choose the titles of our pieces, but I stand by the the argument that it represents. Um, And I think it's important to be clear that the way I refer to hierarchies in the piece um, is very much asking us to look at the liberal order in a social way, right? I think we forget that orders don't just seek to set out kind of stable and predictable behaviors that regulate relations between states. Um, uh, They also uphold particular values and they seek to produce kind of particular goals or outcomes. So if we look at where the values come from and who benefits from the goals that orders try to kind of um, produce, then we start to see social hierarchies. And of course, the the idea of an imperial hierarchy suggests that this harks back to uh, an imperial period. I think you know, if you're having a social analysis of anything, it's not as simple as simply going out and observing things, right? We need to go into a bit of detail and a bit of history Um, And I think if we look at the chief architects of the the liberal order that we have today, then we can see that since the Vienna Settlement of 1815 or even earlier, European great powers were seeking to establish um, and maintain a a sort of civilizational hierarchies, right? And sought to institutionalize these into international law. Um, And hierarchies always center on kind of social discourses. Um, these were, in in the case of European imperialism, um, mm. scientific racism, uh, technological supremacy, and also moral and religious superiority. Um, and what we see then, as we as we kind of move through time, um, is is a sort of universalizing project that seeks to bring non-European civilizations kind of into the fold, and and I guess an exclusionary strategy. Um, which sort of seeks to differentiate Western from non-Western societies. Mm-hmm. Um, and those hierarchies are still very much embedded in our post-Second World War architecture, in our liberal order. Now, it's not a straight story of, of the West imposing itself on the rest of the world. This was not a passive um, kind of reception among the non-West. But I think it's clear that powerful Western states did take on a proportion- disproportionate role in shaping the norms and rules of, of, of formal and informal institutions in our in our uh, international order. And so of course, different parties will benefit from these. If we go to the question of who benefits from an order, from its goals, um, some might see the, the liberal order as producing you know, greater prosperity through a certain kind of economics, um, a political order that favors democratic governance, mm-hmm. a strategic order that suppresses conflict between great powers, but others don't see it that way at all, right? It's the liberal order is the result of an imperialist project of US elites. Um, it's, it's led to deep inequality. So to, to answer your question finally, um, you know, some parts of the Chatham House report, I felt were expecting complete adherence of India to an order that's not always
0: in its interests. I understand the um, you know theoretical conceptual argument that, that that you just made, the historical argument that you just made, but notwithstanding that part hmm. of the argument, when someone in the West looks at India, um, is there is there a logical um, you know? Is, is, it, is it logical to argue that India is a difficult country, like Russia, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia? And if, if so, what makes India look difficult?
1: When you're just looking at the international level now, because we need to think that this is not just a conversation about India's international role, but also what's happening domestically in, in the Chatham House report. And we'll come to that, I think. Yeah, yeah there is a kind of much longer discourse that um, is connected to anxiety in in Western capitals about um, the future of the international liberal order and who will be the partners that moving forward will uphold that order. Um, And there's a number of candidates, there's Brazil, there's India. Um, These seem to be nice kind of democracies that will continue the project as uh, the, the, the power of Western states declines. So um, there's a constant sort of effort to seek out, you know, whether these partners will be reliable because we're looking for stability. And of course, we know that India is not um, unthinkingly, has not unthinkingly embraced uh, the, the international liberal order. There's many parts of it that seem unjust. Um, India has not been a, a, a big supporter of, um, you know, humanitarian interventions. <laughs> um, it has a very sovereignist position. Um, and I think these these kinds of caveats that India has towards the order, which come from the origins that I described before, uh, mean that it's not going to invest as wholeheartedly as the, the author of the Chatham House report might want. Um, and I think that the problem with that is that it's not situating yourself in, in New Delhi and asking what are the challenges that India faces and perceives when confronting that order it's it's really reading India's behaviour through UK interests and, what, uh, and, and really a sort of a normal that is imagined from a UK position. But that, that normal is not normal for India. Kate,
0: you also argue that the international order of the early 21st century remains grounded in the myth of the formal equality and sovereignty of states where even powerful states like um, India still do not enjoy full political and economic interdependence in how they make decisions at home. Um, I mean, um, this is a very interesting argument. Uh, Could you sort of explain this argument for for our viewers? Um, Because Mm -hmm. you have a very powerful country here, uh, militarily very powerful, economically pretty powerful, and yet you seem to make the argument that, hey, you know, the former equality and sovereignty of states is, sort of grounded in, uh, it's, it's a myth in many ways. Take us through that argument, uh, Professor, uh, for sure. our viewers.
1: So I think, and one of the books that is worth reading more of on this is Jerry Simpson's book, Great Powers and Outlaw States. And, you know, he's just one of a number of scholars uh, who again are looking at uh, international order in a, in a social way and saying, you know, sovereign equality is, is vastly uneven. There is no sovereign equality. Um, it's not just because some some powers have relatively higher material capability, but because these powers um, essentially claim the right to intervene in the affairs of other states um, to promote their version of order. And some, some states are more susceptible to that than others, right? So you've got inequality at both ends. You've got inequality. Great powers think that they can do things that other states can't. And you've got a category of states where... Great powers seem to feel that it's more legitimate to intervene in them um, or intervene in their, their affairs than, than others. So this creates quite a lot of, of variation and so this idea of the difficult state um, as being those who sort of don't acknowledge the legitimacy of great power norms and behaviours, they don't adopt the social roles and the material practices that, that great powers would want them to adopt um, these are kind of more vulnerable than other states. The interesting thing there uh, to, to focus on, I think, as well, um, is that uh, if you if you have these social hierarchies um, uh, that still continue, where some states sort of assume the right to lead and rule over others and to judge others and to affect their status through speech acts and through certain decisions, sanctions, for example, um, uh, you know, Clearly, you are not operating on, a, on an even playing field. Um, and, you know, another sort of book to read on this, which is an absolutely brilliant one, which I cite in the article, is um, Adam Getachew's book, World Making After Empire. She puts it a slightly different way. She says when states were seeking self-determination, they weren't just seeking self-determination over their domestic sphere uh, to, to have sort of the politics and the economics that they wanted, They were also seeking outwardly a space, an international space, where they could be free to manifest the destinies, the political and economic destinies they wanted to manifest, right? Um, And her argument is that that uh, international space never really came into play. And I think the two arguments sort of dovetail very nicely. Um, And I think it's very very kind of common to, to think that India is rising and it's unassailable and nothing can stop it. But I'm not sure that's the experience of Indian foreign policy elites, you know, at the UN or in certain international settings. I think what you find is that social hierarchies still mark the core institutions of world politics. India still can't get access as a permanent member of the UN Security Council. You know, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty very carefully institutionalizes a hierarchy between, you know, five states who are legally permitted uh, to possess nuclear weapons and the rest who aren't. Um, even you know the G20, for example, uh, is, is vastly dominated by European states over others. So there are ways in which I think we see these, this unequal access to the international um, still firmly institutionalised and still shaping where India can make decisions and where it can't. For example, on, on peacekeeping troops, India commits so many and yet has very little say on how they're deployed or on you know, mission scope and so on. So, I think that's what I'm trying to get at. I don't think it's a very popular uh, view, and I don't think it's one that's particularly enunciated much um, by by India's foreign policy elites. But I think it's um, certainly there in the background.
0: I mean, this is interesting, uh, Kate, because for a very long time, India uh, saw itself as an outlier state in many ways and was critical of the international system. The P5, the N5, et cetera, and then sort of uh, today it wants to be part of the high table in the international system as it were, and yet it is unable to sort of um, um, get to that level. Um, and and is, is, is this a result of, there is a desire, unlike earlier, earlier on, it was critical, today it is more conciliatory, and it is, and yet it is finding it difficult to sort of be at the high table of the international system. Um, What is this a function of? What is this a result of, in your opinion?
1: So it's a really complicated matter because we know that for a very long time, um, those driving India's foreign policy have had a a very strongly critical stance on precisely the inequalities in the international order, right? right? And yet when you're seeking to be recognized as a potential great power, as a rising power, you have to seek recognition According to quite well-established norms of what a great power is and what a rising power is, so you actually reach this point where it, it, it becomes kind of very difficult. On the one hand, you're conforming to that template; on the other hand, you're resisting it because it has you have a history of having you know not being able to do what you want as a result of it, and maybe you know in terms of values you don't agree with it, and so you're sort of steering this very difficult path between conforming, uh, resisting. Um, and I think that ambivalence really is, 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 a, is, a, is a product of those two tensions. Um, and I, by no means do I think that the process is complete. Um, lots of people are saying now, well, India's starting to mimic the great powers. It's you know, developing its material power. There are still very many tensions in, in uh, India's sort of rising power persona
0: right i mean very interestingly you also in your article in the indian express make um, uh, make a reference to normative resources as it were right i mean say for example you 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 argue that as long as uh, the government in india practices uh, a, a domination at home it cannot really muster the critical and normative resources to inspire greater equality legitimacy and inclusivity in the international sphere. Um, do, do you want to sort of explain that for our viewers? That's, that seems to be a very interesting argument right there.
1: I think the important thing is to, to, to look to nested hierarchies, right, because on the one hand you can see that India as a state is struggling in an international hierarchy. Uh-huh. Right, that just spoken of. Um, and the problem when you criticize that hierarchy is that it can be read as a defense of the actions of the Indian government. So if, if an outside force critiques um, some of the, the major problems in India's domestic polity today, it's very easy to take a sovereignty stance and say, oh, you're just being a, an imperial power and telling us what to do and, and we're tired of this. Now, that, that that doesn't really address at all the, the, the big problems within uh, India's domestic sphere at the moment. You know, The suppression of, of dissent, um, Uh, shrinking of a sort of uh, sort of space for civic rights and so on so um, what we need to do I think is find a position that we can try and come at that from that is not an outside uh, lecturing hectoring western state um, but uh, but one that tries to think of what values do we want what does self-determination mean at multiple levels um and this kind of links in very strongly to what got me so excited and interested in Indian foreign policy originally, right? So my, my PhD thesis way back was all about looking at, um, I, I guess, Indian ideas of greatness that emerged from the independence movement. And the idea that these had a lot to do with self-determination, had a lot to do with um, equality and challenging racial hierarchies and material hierarchies. And they were very exciting to me. Um, they weren't without their problems because, um, you know, as scholars such as Sankaran Krishna have, have pointed out, you know, there were all sorts of worrying hierarchies embedded in quite a lot of the nationalist thinking that centered on casteism or, or sort of Hindu centrism. Um, but they were, they, they, they formed a powerful critique, um, I think of, of, of sort of the imperial and colonial projects of the West. Um, now, where are those resources today? Um, And if we think of sort of what kinds of values one could project out of the rising powers of the future that might uh, solve some of the problems of of, the Western hierarchy, the the hierarchies in the Western liberal order, um, where would we find them in India today? And I think quite a lot of the critique um, that's coming at India, it centers uh, really on, on a sense that, that those values um, are, are not really uh, in, in evidence, um, certainly uh, within the government at the moment. Those reflective ideas of equality, um, uh, they're not there. So um, I think the, the point is that you can't really um, challenge the values at the international level if you're not performing um, values in the domestic space that are admirable to others. So those layers are connected, even though they are sort of separate hierarchies in a way.
0: Let me ask you a slightly related question. There, I mean, you know, um, India has been seeking um, um, its right rightful place in the international system. It desires to be treated as a sovereign equal by the leading powers of the international system, and yet. Um, it, it also comes with a lot of post-colonial sensitivities and it's not too happy when uh, other countries, especially Western countries, point fingers at what is happening, say, within India, be it Kashmir or communal relations within India. As a scholar of international politics, um, what is the sweet spot? How do we, how do we sort of uh, view this? Um, should countries retain the right um to to sort of uh, critique what is happening internally in other countries i mean to be to sort of uh, be be very specific should uh britain have the right to um talk about what is happening in kashmir or in other parts of india or should uh, the should the uk government uh, be uh, more sensitive to india's post colonial sensitivities where do you stand on that
1: so uh, it's a really difficult question. I think uh, absolutely there should be a right. I think there should be a right for Indians and the Indian government to criticise the UK. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not as simple as saying that critique should be mutual, because we know that it's not an even playing field, right? I mean, that these hierarchies persist, and it's 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 not correct to say that there's an equal right for both uh, to to critique the other. We know that Um, Even if the UK is a dwindling great power, it has an ability to, um, you know, diminish the state, the status of other states in a way that um, perhaps India doesn't. Um, So I I think, you know, there needs to be space for dissent in general. There needs to be space for discussion, whether it's in India, um, whether it's in the UK. Um, And I think holding hostage, holding criticism hostage to, you know, to, um, trade deals or right. better relations okay. is, is problematic. I mean, ideally, you'd get to a place where there is a trusting kind of a relationship where you can voice critique in both directions. And that there is much to critique in the UK. Um, and I think an Indian perspective on many of the UK's problems is really valuable. Um, but I don't know if we're there yet, partly because of uh, an inability on, I think, more the UK side to deal with the imperial history. Um, and and uh, partly because the current government in, in India is very defensive about any kind of critique.
0: Let's go back to the Chatham House report uh, for, for a moment. Um, it cites um, India joining the uh, SCO um, as evidence of India being resistant to joining the Western camp while at the same time arguing for Britain to negotiate an investment agreement with China like EU did last year. Seems like an inconsistent argument there. How do you view that?
1: So I think there's a a few ways of reading this. Um, I think part of a bigger problem with the British uh, establishment um, and its views on India, and it's quite widespread, I think it goes beyond Chatham House, is an inability to see the world from India's perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I see this sort of time and time again in in the way that speeches are made, in the way that policy reports are written. Um, And I think it's it's very difficult to understand that there might be very good reasons for India's membership of the SEO. Um, Not least, Mm -hmm. it's extremely strategically important relationship with Russia. So I think part of it comes from ignorance of India's position. I think part of it might be a kind of slightly patronizing sense that, well, the UK can engage in deals uh, and in relations with China um, because it, it will be really careful, you know, not to compromise itself and, and to uphold certain values. And perhaps an implied sense that India is not uh, able to do that. Um, but that would be putting, you know, uh, projecting perhaps uh, too much onto, onto what uh, Robin Niblett's intentions were with the report. Um, But I think another way of looking at it is that perhaps understandably there is a lot of concern um, that India is not uh, as democratic as it has been and that keeping company with a a group of predominantly authoritarian states um, points to a a longer trend um, in, in the direction of India's polity. So, I mean, those are just my sort of perceptions of what he might have, what might be behind that obvious dissonance and contradiction in the report.
0: Right, you know, now, now that we've talked about this, this particular inconsistency slash contradiction, uh, I think I should have asked this question early on, but how reflective um, um, is the Chatham House report um, of the policy positions in London today?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is a point that needs to be underscored very strongly. Um, it really doesn't seem to overlap with what the UK government is actually doing on the ground. Um, So I gave evidence in late 2018 as part of a a uh, year-long inquiry called Global uh, Global Britain and India, and this was launched by the House of Commons Cross-Party Foreign Affairs Committee. And the report of that inquiry came out very strongly in favour of intensified relations with India um, uh, the report uh, is dated June 2019, and it clearly stated that India is an important ally for the UK in defending the rules-based uh, international order. So um, I think there's a, we really have to understand that the Chatham House report is, is a think piece that is addressing a set of reflections um, that, that, the, that Britain needs to contend with moving forward in the world rather than any kind of reflection of, of official uh, UK government policy.
0: Right, the Chatham House report, report seems to make the argument that India probably should not be included in an expanded G7. What is the thinking in the government in UK on that particular subject?
1: Yeah, I think, again, um, this is a really key place where the Chatham House report uh, diverges from what I understand the uh, UK government policy to be. Um, I mean, we know that, that uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, um, who is obviously hosting, we're hosting the G7 um, uh, meet this, this year, uh, he's invited South Korea, India, and Australia to attend the Leaders Summit in June. Um, so, you know, in a way, he is clearly pushing forward with some kind of coalition of leading democracies. Um, we also know though that, that this hasn't really been responded to very well by Japan. Um, um, in recent days, we've heard that Japan is not particularly in favor of this, um, it's quite common to to invite guest countries to the G7, but they're not normally involved as deeply as it seems that Mr Johnson wants them to be. Um, and I think there's a worry that this is a bit of a, a unilateral move to establish kind of a coalition of democracies to counter China and other authoritarian states without necessarily it being a collective decision. And I understand that I think France, uh, Germany and Italy are also slightly concerned so um, mismatch there uh, between Chatham House report and UK policy, but UK policy itself is, is I think, uh, under contention at the moment.
0: Right, um, Kate, um, if I may shift gears a little, let's, let's talk a bit about uh, UK's grand strategy uh, in the wake of Brexit. Uh, Prime Minister Johnson has been floating the idea of a great uh, global Britain in the aftermath of Brexit from EU. Um, how much substance is there to the um, global role for UK argument today? Uh, is, or, or, or is Britain uh, really chasing the mirage of uh, past imperial glory, uh, which, which of course um, um, is at odds with uh, its own diminished stature today? Uh, so how do you look at the British grand strategy as it were, uh, in particular, a global role for UK in the wake of uh, Brexit?
1: yeah so i mean i think the idea of global and of global britain reflects it reflects an aspiration and an anxiety um i'm not sure how grounded it is on reality i think the problem is that uk is used to taking a leading role in responding to global challenges but of course everything is uncertain right now um partly to do with brexit but we know that in international politics power is more widely dispersed. Um, the pathways to influence are, aren't as clear as they used to be. Different powers are rising. Um, there are less resources to pursue goals because you know, there's an economic contraction. Um, and so global Britain, I think is, is certainly, um, it, it's, it's symbolic or it's a, it's a diagnostic of, of um, a, an anxiety and a, a need, Uh, to think through Britain's or the UK's role uh, globally, uh, to reinvest in relations, carve out opportunities. Um, It's supposed to signal openness. Um, It's supposed to also signal confidence, of course. Um, And I think it's supposed to signal sort of continuing commitment to a rules-based order. And, And parts of these signals are, of course, outward, but parts of them are also for domestic consumption. Um, And there is a segment of British society, partly connected to obviously the current, you know, base of the the current British government that wants maybe to read into this um, uh, sort of imperial nostalgia, uh, the idea of a plucky little island forging its way um, on the global stage, freed from the shackles of a constraining EU. But I think we know that these days are, are they're long past. I mean, let's be frank. I, 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 it's mm-hmm. clear that the UK is not in the same position that it has been. It is going to have to uh, come to terms with being a sort of middle power, uh, even one—even though it still is one with great power privileges institutionally. And I think, you know, this is where I think Robin Niblett's report is really useful. You know, he's saying India shouldn't try and reincarnate itself as a, as a mini great power. It needs to shift gear needs to take on a different role and he, funnily enough his idea of Britain as a global Britain global broker it looks sort of similar in in at an abstract level to the role that India has played internationally um, for decades you know seeking to find consensus points seeking to bring different parties together um, and've I've long sort of made this point in various forums that um, I think the UK has a lot to learn from India's Experience of, of having high ambitions, but perhaps not necessarily the material clout to always uh, achieve them, and, and what kinds of um, social power do you need to wield in, in order to, to make good on that? Um, you know, I think it's clear that the risk of, of a global Britain that's unself-reflexive, backward looking, and so on, um, is that we actually erase lots of the things that make us really strong. Um, but not strong in a typical traditional hard power grand strategic sense, but strong in terms of the networks that we have as a nation. And I think a really great piece that sets this out is a piece that um, Tarek Bakavi and Shane Brighton wrote in 2013, um, published by the Chatham House Journal International Affairs, so before everybody comes down too hard on on Chatham House, uh, with the title Brown Britain. And it's such a great piece. It talks about um, you know, how Britain needs to look uh, at, at itself as uh, being part of a global network to look at its diaspora economies, to look at its um, diverse histories and see great potential in India's post-colonial connect- connections and, and really see agency as, as, as located in many different sites, not just in this kind of very white elite uh, governmental space in the UK. So I think there are all sorts of ways of thinking about it that maybe, you know, have not yet bubbled up and have not, are not yet being necessarily implemented. And we need to be far more creative than than we are, I think, as a nation.
0: Right, uh, Kate, within this, uh, you know, grand strategic um, uh, posturing about a global role for UK, um, how does um, London look at um, or perceive China? I mean, sitting in Delhi, um, I can tell you this, uh, China is, is, is uh, perceived to be the biggest uh, threat um, uh, by India, clearly. And also within, I think, within the international community today, there is a feeling that China is emerging as a uh, major challenger to the existing international system, international order. How does um, uh, Britain look at it? I mean, you know, there is a desire to um, negotiate an investment agreement with China, clearly. Um, but but as as a from in, in, within the security sphere, um, how does UK look at look at China?
1: Yes, I think um, I think we've seen a huge shift in the last sort of five years or so. Um, I, the UK kind of declared itself wide open to Chinese investment in twenty fifteen. It was a big advocate for China in Europe, but we've seen yes. a, a big reversal here. Um, uh, I think there's just been a growing awareness, um, a, a sort of a big swing to Sino-scepticism, essentially. And we see that in the way that Chinese investment uh, has been blocked from some strategic UK industries. Um, there are moves to cut Huawei out, out of UK telecoms networks by 2027. And um, of course, there are growing concerns, as there are in many places, about the treatment of Uyghur uh, Muslims um, and the UK has really been pushing itself as a safe haven for uh, political exiles from Hong Kong. So th- there's been an absolutely massive shift, um, you know, away from this warm embrace of China that we saw uh, five or so years ago. Um, I, I think there, are, there is a sense, um, much like the EU position, that surely there must be ways of boosting economic trade and uh, other relation, economic relationships that are you know, lower risk than others. Um, but whether you know, these become possible and, and how far they continue to be embraced, we'll have to see. But I think there is, there is a, really a sea change in, in the position on China.
0: You know, um, I also noted that in the um, Chatham House report, um, the report keeps mentioning Asia Pacific as opposed to Indo-Pacific. In fact, uh, it mentions Indo-Pacific, I think only once. Asia Pacific, the term that is preferred by China is mentioned several times. And this is despite the, um, you know, global talk about Indo-Pacific these days, and especially uh, from from within the United States. So how how do you sort of um, see um, this, this uh, going back to the Asia-Pacific terminology by, by the Chatham House report. That, is that reflective at all of how Britain is looking at, uh, um, uh, the, the British government is looking at Indo-Pacific?
1: So I think the Indo-Pacific idea is much more entrenched than the Chatham House report indicates. But of course, the UK has been a bit slower in sending clear signals than, than other countries. You know, It hasn't released a sort of Indo-Pacific strategy or so on. But it's important to note that um, at the institutional level, there is a Director General of Indo-Pacific in the from Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office. There is a sort of restructuring there, um, an institutional commitment to the Indo-Pacific. And you'll see Indo-Pacific mentioned now in increasingly many more government speeches. Um, and so I think I think what the delay is I'm not sure is it just because the UK has been very busy with Brexit is it was it sort of being hesitant waiting to see how things played out? Um, obviously we know that China was very unsettled by this terminology. I don't know if it was a, an, an effort of caution. We can only speculate. Um, but I think it's important to think about what what the Indo-Pacific offers the UK and what is it offering most states. And I think it's it's a new space, right? It's a new um, spatial imaginary that many countries are using to project their own ambitions, their own ideas, or what they want an order to look like. Um, and, and I think that that embracing the Indo-Pacific at a moment when the UK is doing a lot of self-reflection over its global position and role makes perfect sense, right? Because you can sort of start to jockey for position in this new and unsettled space. So I think it's attractive for that reason. Um, uh, and we'll probably see, see and hear a lot more
0: about it. Um, Kate, I want to sort of end with um, uh, one forward-looking question, and that is about um, um, where does uh, post-Brexit Britain stand in a post-COVID-19 world? Um, how does Britain uh, sort of uh, perceive itself and its role in the emerging new world order?
1: I don't know if we really know what the post-COVID-19 world looks like yet, and I don't even know if there will be a post-COVID-19 world. <laughs> so I, I don't really know how to answer that question. Um, I, I think that uh, a lot of, I mean, a lot of what the UK was planning to do will continue. Um, it will have to be augmented slightly. I mean, for example, we're seeing this big. Um, push towards uh, leadership on climate change associated with the COP26, um, which is being seen as a, as a key moment for the UK to demonstrate leadership, um, for the UK to project a kind of positive image of a sustainable and innovative country. But we also know that, that momentum on moving forward with climate commitments will be a big challenge because of the economic fallout of the pandemic. So I think, you know, that there will be a continuation of many of the of the goals um ch- trying to implement this this global britain um idea uh but uh, of sort of leadership um providing leadership but uh, on global challenges but i think they're all going to face uh, significant hurdles and probably many many economic hurdles as well but i think that's true of many states at this at this point
0: fascinating insights wonderful conversation thank you so much uh, kate for coming on the show Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate and follow us. For regular updates, you can also follow our Twitter handle NSC with HJ or our Facebook page National Security Conversations with Happimon Jacob.